The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. If you have your copy of scripture, we're in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. That's 7, 25 through 36. And as you're opening up your word, let me just recap, kind of resituate where we are so far in the gospel of John. Jesus has been facing severe disbelief, and now he starts to face opposition, specifically from the religious leaders. He goes to Jerusalem uh, after witnessing disbelief from some of his disciples who left him after a hard teaching and his own brothers disbelieving him. Now he finds himself in the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, teaching at the temple, and still he's faced with disbelief. One of the things that are causing people to disbelieve Jesus is he doesn't really fit the mold of what they expected for the Messiah to be. So he's saying things like, if you knew the Father, you would know my teaching. And that's kind of easy to understand, but then he would say things like he did in Galilee, like, I'm the bread of life. You, you've got to eat me in order to, and drink my blood in, in, in order to find eternal life. So he's just breaking expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to, or who the Messiah is supposed to be, how he's supposed to behave, what he's supposed to do. But Jesus uh, gives us a, a, a sharp warning, one that, uh, you know, cuts to our heart today, that we ought not to judge by appearance, but by right judgment concluded last week in John 7, 24. And so Jesus is going to carry on that message now, moving from the temple to the Jerusalemites, those who were local to the city, and proclaim this same message to them, that if you truly know my Father, you would know my teaching is from him. You would know that I am the Messiah. You would believe me. You'd put your trust in me. You'd have your faith in me. But you're getting tripped up on the external things, the appearance I'm not the kind of person you think I should be because I'm more than just a person, as we're going to see today. We're going to be challenged by uh, Jesus' words to obey and believe all of him, not just the parts that we think make sense, not just the bits that we want, but all of him. And that comes despite appearances, what we think we already know. And that this reception of Jesus, taking him fully for who he is, will lead us to repentance that we may go where he has gone, that being into his death and rise again to newness of life to be with his father. So let's begin. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities know that this is really the Christ? No, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Some, not all, of the people of Jerusalem. Who are these folks? John is showing us, once again, the type of people who disbelieve. We saw the religious leaders reject Jesus in disbelief. We saw the crowds reject Jesus in disbelief. We saw some of his own disciples reject Jesus in disbelief. We saw some of his own family members rejecting Jesus in disbelief. And now we're seeing some, not all, but some of the people of Jerusalem. Who are these folks? These would have been citizens of Jerusalem. Makes sense, right? Because they're called the people of Jerusalem. But with that comes kind of a privileged position in life. 
If you've ever lived in a very influential city or in some kind of influential part of the country or the world, you know that it's a lot different than living out in the country. Even though the job you have may be a standard job, you're in some kind of service industry, you're not really high up in the social ladder, just the proximity to a you know, big university or a big cultural or arts center gives you insider information to culture. It gives you insider information to what's going on. And so the people of Jerusalem were likely just regular folks who happened to live in Jerusalem. What that means, though, is that the synagogues they go to have, you know, the brightest rabbis. And that every now and then there might be some kind of public talk that they are walking home from the evening, but you know what, I got an extra couple hours, I'm going to go listen to this guy speak. And so they, they would have had a little bit more knowledge. They would have had a little bit more of an idea of what's going on, at least according to their perspective. And we see that that actually doesn't serve them very well because they're on the right track. Can it be that this man's the Messiah? And they know about it, the religious leaders, and there's a conspiracy that they're keeping it to themselves because they don't want us to know for some reason. That's the right thinking, right? They're, they're getting there. But, oh, here it comes. They, they fall off the tracks. We know this man. We know where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. I've heard that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be mysterious. That there's not going to be any way anybody could tell where this, this, this divine being comes from. There was a teaching floating around in that day that was summarized in a little rabbinical teaching that goes like this. Three things come when they are not expected. A lost article of clothing, a scorpion, and the Messiah, right? So you kind of see what that saying is, is saying. How many of you have lost your phone or something like that? And then, or, or let's go with keys, because now we can just like summon our phone on our smartwatch. It's like, bing, 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 bing. That sound happens all, at our house all the time, right? But you know, like you, you misplaced your keys, and so you're walking, and it's been like a day, and you're getting really nervous, and then all of a sudden, boop, they show up, as if out of nowhere, like they had a will, and they revealed themselves from under the couch the whole time, right? Or uh, how many of you have been bit by scorpions? Yeah, all of us. And you know, that thing comes out of nowhere. So the rabbis were teaching in the same way that it's, you lose your keys and then magically they turn up, you don't know how, and in the same way a scorpion comes and is like, bam, I'm a scorpion. So the Messiah would come. He would come when you least expect him and he would be in a place you'd least expect him and, and then he would be like this thing of a scorpion, very quick. But we know where this guy comes from. Like, he's got an address. It's like one Main Street, Nazareth. You can go to his house. Just like the crowd in the last chapter, the people of Jerusalem are sitting here asking themselves, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And yet now, how can he say, I have come down from heaven? It's a paradox, isn't it? How can a mere man from upstate Israel in the woods the sticks in Nazareth, also be making these incredible claims that he's the bread of life, that he comes down from heaven, that he is the son of God. How can he in one hand be a man and yet on another hand be God? And yet, is that not the central paradox of the Christian faith? They've stumbled upon it here, this incredible paradox. It's a paradox of revelation of how God reveals himself to us. 
And it's crucial to what it means to be a Christian. You see, on one hand, God is obvious. The way scripture describes him is that he is glorious, he is holy, he is mighty, he is powerful. He sits enthroned and rules over all things for all time, has complete sovereignty, surrounded by light, angelic beings that cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But on the other hand, if God wants to reveal himself to us, what happens in that state when people come to him? Woe is me, Isaiah says. I'm a man of unclean lips. We are told that nobody can see the Lord face to face and live. So if God wants us to understand him by more than just information, he wants us to live with him, to have an experience of him, he needs to come to us. If God wants us to truly understand him, he must come to our world, the one he created, to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, to speak from, to wrestle with Jacob, to speak to Moses from a burning bush. And now in the gospels, he must be the word made flesh who dwelt among us. God is known to us by living a life we know. So the Son of God lived a life we know. He had a mom, he had an address, he had a job, he was one of us living our life. But if he's merely a man, and we're with these people of Jerusalem, we know where this man comes from, and we don't see that other side of him, then that's no true revelation of God at all. He's just a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet, isn't he? Yes, Jesus is the son of Mary from Nazareth, but he's also the son of God from heaven. And that is the paradox that we're faced with, that they're facing and wrestling with. And it's something that we have to grip with faith, not rationality first followed by faith, but a faith that seeks understanding, a faith that takes Jesus as he is presented and leads us to understand what it is we believe and why we believe it. This is similar to what Jesus asked of Nicodemus in John 3.12. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If you don't even believe me in what I am teaching as a man, he's telling the people of Jerusalem, or he will soon, then how can you believe who I actually am in full and in wholeness? If we struggle to believe Jesus as just a man who lived and taught, how much more are we going to struggle to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and is redeemed? You see, we don't like paradoxes. They're uncomfortable for us. We want answers and we want them now. Furthermore, we want answers now that make sense to us, ones that we can understand through reason. But all throughout the Old Testament, God was setting up this paradox that the people are wrestling with here. That he was going to promise a redeemer, that this redeemer would come through the line of David, so he would be a man from Israel. But the Old Testament also shows over and again that God says that he himself would be the redeemer. So that somehow through this line of David, he would insert himself to come to walk among us. There had to be a door through which God himself would enter. And what was that door? 
but the womb of a virgin one night in a little town called Bethlehem, Micah 5.2 predicted. You're too little to be among the clans of Judah, speaking of Bethlehem. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, this is something that the religious leaders knew was coming. They knew the Messiah was coming through Bethlehem. We know this because if you look at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, the wise men come from the east and they ask the religious authorities of the day, we think the Messiah is here, can you tell us where he's supposed to be born? They go back and they consult the scriptures and they come back and they give this answer, Matthew chapter 2. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and then goes on to recount that same passage that we just read, Micah 5, 2. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, which he was, and then he was raised in Nazareth. So the crowd here is actually wrong. The people of Jerusalem are not correct in their assumption that nobody will know where the Messiah will come from. Everybody should know where the Messiah should come from, through the line of David born in Bethlehem. And the reason they missed it it's because they were uncomfortable with that paradox. They were uncomfortable looking for one who was both descended from the line of David and the Son of God incarnate. So when we're looking at these people of Jerusalem, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, inserting ourselves in the story, where would we stand? Would we be some of the people that were uncomfortable with paradox? We have to have the answer that we understand. We have to have it now. I think we ought to be comfortable with paradox, not with contradiction, not with irrationality, not with lies, but with paradox, something that seems absurd, but once you investigate it thoroughly, turns out to be true. And that the limitation wasn't what you were investigating, it was you. Our faith is filled with paradoxes. You must Lose your life to what? Gain it. You must love those who hate you. So it's no surprise that the one who teaches these paradox is himself a paradox. I think one of the greatest passages we see this is in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, that Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So that the incarnation as a paradox is this. He's a king servant. He's the fullness of life emptied. He's the God man. He is the author of life who came to die. Because Paul continues, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And yet through that death on the cross, where life died, we find life. So that the eternal life may be found in eternity's death. So that humanity's life becomes life through the death of God. Paradox. Is Jesus a man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth to human parents? Yes. Is Jesus God, unbegotten, eternal Son of God? Yes. And gripping with that paradox turns us away from either or to both hand, and that's where we found 
or that's where we find truth. It's so tempting to slip off on one way or another, but we have to stay on the horse, so to speak. And the crowd, for most of them anyway, didn't do this. They slipped off on the side that Jesus is a man. And because he's a man, ah, his questions can be, or his teachings are, are questionable now. In fact, the teachings that I was given doesn't quite line up with what this guy's saying. So he's probably not the Messiah. You see the danger in falling off one way or the other. And so for the people, disbelief is clouding their faith. They cannot see who Jesus is because they refuse to be comfortable with the paradox that is at the center of the Christian faith. But Jesus begins to address their concern. He says in verse 28, as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus repeats what he taught in the temple just a couple of days ago, namely that what we heard him teach last week when Jack was preaching. Jesus is not acting on his own authority to seek his own glory. He's acting on the authority of the one sent him, that being the Father, and he's seeking after God's glory. So be careful. Don't let, ex don't let the external appearances fool you. No, I'm not dressed to the nines like the religious leaders, and I don't look all awesome like them. I don't have a little business card that has PhD at the end of my title. I am not from a respected religious pedigree like you're expecting me to be from. But here's the deal. I don't need to be those things because I'm the word of God. And my teaching comes directly from the source that the Jewish teachers are fumbling to find themselves. My teaching is not mine, he told us last week, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Now Jesus takes that message to the crowd who assume they know a lot more than they actually do. In fact, to know is a big theme in this passage. We find it seven times in almost as many verses. The crowd says, do the authorities really know that this man's the Messiah? We know where this man comes from, and no one will know where the Messiah is from. Jesus responds, you know me, you know where I come from, but you do not know he who sent me I know him. No, 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 no. Right? Not what you're telling your child, but K-N-O, K-N-O, K-N-O. What helps us understand what's going on here is there's actually two words here for to know in the original language. One of them is to know by like observation and experience, fact-finding, and the other is to know as discernment, or when I put all the pieces of the puzzle together, I come to know what this image is supposed to be of. So if I could, I'm going to read it in a way that you know, takes those, that, those two no verbs uh, into consideration. That the question is, the people asking, can it be that the authorities really discern, understand, have looked at the facts, and have reasoned that this is the Christ? But we, by observation, can tell you where he's from. We know that 
where, where, where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will be able to reason or discern or come to the conclusion that he comes from a specific place. So there's this two kind of no's there. There's the discerning and putting the puzzle together, and then there's the direct observation knowing. Jesus, in his response, only uses the direct observation, the direct experience to know. And that helps us understand what he's trying to say here. He says, you know me, as in you have observed where I came from, you watched me walk into Jerusalem from Nazareth, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. As in, you do not know the Father by experience. You do not know God by relational proximity. I know him. Jesus is saying, I know the Father by my relational proximity, by observing, by hearing, by loving, by living. That's where I come from. Do you see the problem that the, relig- the, the crowd is coming up with? That essentially they are relying not on the testimony of Jesus and the experience that he has in his proximity to the Father, but instead on their own understanding, on their own discernment of what is and what isn't that the people were trying to use their own experience to explain, but what they needed to do is to rely on Jesus' experience to explain. And that, again, requires a faith that seeks understanding and not the other way around. But like the people, don't we want to do the same thing? Like we want to rely on our own discernment, our own understanding, and not the experience that's brought to us in the person and work of Christ. We try to jump to an understanding first, and then if it makes sense to us, we'll believe. And that forces us to rationalize our way to belief, but it's a trap. The trap that the, this, led, this kind of thinking led the people to was essentially asking, how could God use some hick from upstate to save? When, if they, so that's where understanding seeking faith leads you to, right? But a faith that seeks understanding leads you to the proclamation in a question that Peter asked. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The difference between the people in Jerusalem and the disciples are that the disciples were not judging by appearances, and they were allowing Jesus to be him, and they were accepting Jesus for who he was. But the people were looking at Jesus and looking at the appearances and the circumstances and where he's from, and they were making a judgment that this cannot be the Messiah. He's from a one stoplight town in the middle of nowhere. I know how he was raised. I've got a really nice bench made from him and his dad. He's a carpenter. He didn't go to Harvard, right? So why should we trust him? Why should we listen to him? You see, Jesus was concealing his true appearance, wasn't he? We know from the other Gospels that if Jesus were to unveil who he truly was, there would be a physical transformation that happened and that you would be a witness to. 
So in the synoptics, famously, or in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, famously, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples up a mountain, and he unveils himself. He reveals himself. It's called the transfiguration. And in all three of the descriptions that we have of that account, there is a brightness of light, there is a face shining, and there is a clothing shining. So that there's something about Jesus that he's concealing so that faith may be the active agent in bringing us to a knowledge of who Jesus is, not knowledge. Jesus is not only the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. He's also the son of God from heaven. You know me, Jesus tells the crowds. And the crowd says, yeah, you're the son of that carpenter. You know where I come from. And they say, yeah, you're from Nazareth of Galilee. Good, but that's only half of the story. That's only part of who Jesus is. He's also the son of God from heaven. People were prevented from knowing Jesus fully, I think for three reasons. One, like we talked about, they're uncomfortable with that paradox. There's no way he can be both and. There's no way he can be God and man at the same time. He's got to be just a man because we know where he's from. Second, it, apparently they were not listening to scripture enough that they were listening to other people's interpretations of Scripture. And that was leading to that saying, you know, like nobody knows when the sky is going to come, just like you don't know when you're going to find your keys or get stung by a scorpion. And third, I think this is really important because it gets to a, a, a sharp application for us. They were putting restrictions on who Jesus is in their mind. That they had kind of written a list of prerequisite requirements and then built boundaries of who Jesus should be and how Jesus should behave. And because they didn't look, he didn't look like him or speak like the Messiah, their short-sightedness and their limitations blinded them to the fact that the Messiah was in front of them. You see, at the end of the day, they can't see who Jesus truly is because they don't want to. They don't want to see that this is the Messiah. Some of them are comfortable enough with Jesus as the son of Joseph from Nazareth, the miracle man who gives us food and heals us, but they surely don't want to believe that he's the son of God, bread from heaven, upon whom we feast and we receive eternal life. Man, aren't we the same? We can be the same way, that we can be prevented from knowing Jesus fully, I think for two reasons this text is teaching us. One is that we only take parts of Jesus that make sense to us. So we're only comfortable with Jesus so long as he doesn't violate the little checklist in our mind of who Jesus is supposed to be, what Jesus is supposed to say, and how Jesus is supposed to behave. In other words, we allow our worldview or our you know, set of assumptions to dictate to Jesus who he's supposed to be. And we create a shape for him to fit into. But when he doesn't fit into that shape, what happens? We reject him. This happens uh, a lot of times in like theologies, right? So we construct whole theologies that this is the way that Jesus is supposed to behave and what he's supposed to teach. And we allow our theologies or our views to shape him rather than him shape our theologies. We allow our interpretations of scripture 
to shape him rather than he shape our interpretations of scripture. And then we put ourselves in the authority to judge who Jesus is and who he is not. It's a dangerous place to be in. And the reason we get there is because we only take the parts of Jesus we want. We take some of them, right? But we only take the parts that we want. So when you think about it, there's three things Jesus is. There's a lot of things he is, but three things that Jesus is. He's holy, he's king, and he's redeemer. We would all say, if you're a believer, like, yeah, I agree, Jesus is holy. But do you take Jesus as holy? It's a difference between acknowledging that he is and then living as if he is. And that's where you sense, am I taking Jesus holy or just bits and pieces of him? So when Jesus, as holy, calls you to pursue a life of holiness, to crucify your flesh to sin and to live as a new man or a new woman in the Holy Spirit, do you go, okay, but, but this one sin I'm going to bring with me, right? Because if you do that, what you're saying is, I'm fine with you being holy, Jesus, except for this one part. So I'm going to take Jesus as holy, but I'm not going to take holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Jesus. I'm going to leave a little bit of him. Jesus is king. We can all acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, but secretly we all want to keep our autonomy. We want to be masters and commanders of our own destiny. We want to do our own thing. We want to live our life the way we want to. And so long as Jesus and our lives align, we're good. But the second those don't align, what happens? You reject that part of Jesus that's king over your life. You usurp him and you live the way you want to. Jesus as Redeemer. Some of us really struggle with accepting the fact that Jesus has truly done everything for us, that his righteousness is given to us by faith, that our righteousness is alien, it's foreign, it's not ours. And that is to wholly accept Jesus in faith through his grace. And yet, when we try to self-justify and do things here and there to gain our own salvation, absent the grace of God, what we are doing is we are rejecting Jesus as he is and only taking the parts of Jesus that we want. Jesus, I really need your help. Here is my redeemer, but I'm good with this thing. I don't need your help. It's all or nothing. Either Jesus is holy or he's not. Either he's king or he's not. Either he's redeemer or he's not. Either we take him as he is or we take none of him at all. We are not allowed to pick and choose what parts of Jesus we want for ourselves. So when Jesus presents himself to you, do you know him through your expectations or do you know him through the experience he gives you by the experience he has in the Father? There's a big difference between those two. And Jesus is warning the crowd, you need to know me through experience because my experience is the experience I have with the Father, and I'm gifting that to you through faith. Otherwise, we put conditions on knowing Jesus. We filter parts of him out, and that is no Jesus at all. Well, the people didn't like this teaching. The religious leaders in specific really didn't like this teaching. Because not only did Jesus teach it in the temple, but now he's declaring it to the people. It's one thing for you, Jesus, to come to the temple and to try to lecture us. 
It's another thing than to take your teaching and proclaim it to the people because you know the people. They're sheep, and now you're getting them all worked up. And all of our power is starting to slip away. Some of them are actually starting to believe this guy. What are we going to do about it? So they were seeking to arrest him. Those being the religious leaders in verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Look, I'm with you. I struggle with some of the things that he's saying, but come on, the man walked on water. He's like an eternal grocery store and a hospital wrapped up in one. How can you deny the things that he's doing? You see, these are the people that are seeking understanding through faith and not the other way around. So we're starting to see faith build in the midst of disbelief, in the midst of opposition, and even in the midst of fear. You see, the reason Jesus was not arrested here is because, John tells us, his hour has not yet come. And so by providence and God's sovereignty, Jesus is protected from arrest. But Matthew gives us a clue into what God used to prevent his son from being arrested, and it's fear. Matthew 21, 46, although they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So there are enough people in the crowd now that believe in Jesus. Some of the people of Jerusalem are still questioning, only taking bits and pieces of him, that there's a large enough contingency of believers now that the people put the religious leaders in kind of a sticky situation. We got to stop this guy, but if we try to, the people will rebel. The name of the game is hold on to our power. Jesus is causing our power to slip away. But if we go and arrest him, the people will reject us for arresting him, so we'll lose our power anyway. We got a problem on our hands. So what are the religious leaders going to do? They're going to do something insane. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Insane, right? But not for the reason you think. The Pharisees and the chief priests, who are they? They are representatives of opposing religious and political powers. The Pharisees were the people's teachers. They believed the whole testament. They believed crazy things like the resurrection and angels. But they had no power in the temple because they rejected completely any influence from Rome. The Sadducees, however, were considered the theological conservatives. They only took the first five books of the Old Testament, Torah, as inspired. They denied resurrection. They denied angels. And they were in cahoots with the Roman government, which is why they were in power in the temple. Democrats, Republicans, if I could put it like that, hated each other, will not work together for anything. Yet, if you wake up tomorrow and you check the news and you read that the entire House and the entire Senate voted in 100% unanimity that we have a problem that we have to take care of, what would you think about that problem? That's pretty serious, right? All Republicans, all Democrats agree this guy's a problem and he's got to go. That's how serious it was for the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm sorry, the chief priests and the Pharisees to get together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And now we're starting to see the first domino tip over that will inevitably lead to Jesus' death. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 
Both of them are at risk of losing their power, so they're going to set aside their differences temporarily to get rid of this guy. And interestingly, and this is just a little tidbit in the language, but the word to arrest here is not necessarily word. It means to arrest, but it, it's, it's got this interesting um, flavor to it. Piazzo is the Greek word. Uh, it's used to catch a fish, fishing, right? So think about that. These two teams, this coalition of religious authorities teamed up together to fish for Jesus. Why? How do you catch a fish? With what? Bait. You lure him in with bait, and once the fish nibbles on the bait, what do you do? Yank him out of the water. That's important because it's going to show how the religious leaders are, try, are, are going to try to catch Jesus through the rest of the gospel. It's why the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they, Rabbi, you're so smart. Why don't you settle this debate? Right? Or whose man, if he gets married to another woman, is the husband in the resurrection? Like these types of questions, right? They're trying to bait him because they know the people like him. And they can't just roll up in there and arrest him. I think that's pretty interesting. So this new coalition attempts to arrest Jesus, but they're stopped in their tracks, which gives Jesus time to make a, an incredible prediction. Jesus said then, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, what does this man, or where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go up to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? So with these religious leaders united against Jesus, essentially what he's doing here is he's beginning to foretell his death. He says to the Jews, I will be with you a little while longer, which is the same thing he told the disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion in John 13, 33, little children, yet a little while am I with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, that's what we're studying today, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Death prediction. But he's also predicting his, predicting his resurrection. So he tells the Jews, um, then I am going to the one who sent me. So Peter captures this image in 1 Peter 3.22. Christ has gone into heaven and at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And in this prediction of death and resurrection that Jesus is giving to the religious leaders, there is a chilling warning. He says, where I am, you cannot come. You cannot go on the journey where I am going, and you cannot come with me to the destination where I will be. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You cannot come into the grave with me. You cannot die to self. You cannot be buried with me in death. Where I am going, death, you cannot come. But likewise, you cannot come up with me from death. You cannot rise in resurrection with me from death. You cannot ascend to the Father with me in the resurrection. You will not rise again in life. You will rise to death. So he said to them, again, later in, in John 8, 21, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. That's a sobering warning that goes right over their head. And I know this because it seems to me that 
they're, first of all, their behavior shows it. But second, what they say is it seems like they're mocking him for what he's telling them. He's warning them. Your disbelief is causing you to die in your sin. You're going to want to go with me, but you can't because you disbelieve. And their response is to poke fun at him. Where's he going to go? The Greeks? The dispersion? Where all the Jews are out in Gentile land? What's he going to do? Hang out with Jews in the Roman empires? Or the Jews are only the one Roman empire, I guess. So you go hang out with them? Those Jews? <laughs> the ones that only get to show up three times a year? They're not fortunate enough to live in the promised land, in God's holy city, Jerusalem, and dwell next to his presence in the temple like we are? Worse, maybe he's going to go hang out with the Gentiles, those unclean, uneducated kindling for hell. Let him. Can you feel the arrogance in their response? and the sadness that comes with it, that they are dismissing life itself. What does he mean by saying, they ask, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? He means this. I am going to a life through death, but you are going through life to death and you cannot follow me because of your disbelief. The religious leaders did not see Jesus for who he wholly was. They only took bits and parts. And for the religious leaders, it wasn't much at all that they were taking. And because they didn't accept Jesus for who he wholly is, they could not go where he would be to live a life of holiness that eventually ends in a glorious resurrection to the presence of the Father forever. Do we accept Jesus for, for his fullness, for who he truly is, even though it's a paradox, even though we don't understand it, even though it takes a lot of faith? Do we accept Jesus for who he really is? Or do we try to reason our way? Do we just take what we want of Jesus and leave the rest? That's what the people in Jerusalem were doing. That's what the religious leaders were doing. And the warning that Jesus gives us, if we do that, is sobering. You can't come with him. But the good news is that he bids us to come with him. Come to me, and he will give you rest. We need only have faith that who he says and how he presents himself is true. That the testimony that he gives from the Father is real. And that he is going to gain for us life through death, another paradox. But that we get to join in on that life through death because of him. So let us be the kind of people who takes Jesus wholly for who he is that we would take all of Jesus, not just the parts that make sense to us or the parts that we want, but everything. And that in receiving Jesus for who he wholly is, we will be led to repentance, to live a life that models him and to go to the place where he is preparing for us in his Father's mansion. Amen? Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word in the Gospel of John and for the word of God, your Son. 
We thank you uh, that you have given us the gift of faith by the message of your son in the gospel, that we may come to understand you through the revelation of him. But Lord, we confess that our own desires and selfishness and short-sightedness blind us to, to, to who Jesus truly is. Father, I pray that the Spirit would convict us in those moments that we would return in humility before our Creator, that even though there are things hard to understand in the faith, we would accept them not because we don't have good reason, but because you are our Good Shepherd and you are calling us. Lord, let us be a people that hear you in your call and accept you for who you truly are, not just what we want. Father, we love you, and it's in...